perfect predictability would be awful for me. I am way too old for any level of certainty in the work that I do. Has anyone ever called you a honeypot of experimentation before? No, but I love it. And I think I'm going to put that on every one of my social media posts from now on forever. So thank you. Daniel, I'm going to respectfully call you wrongheaded for even suggesting unified theory of innovation. And here's why. We are back in 2023 with more A Load of BS podcasts talking behavioral science, creativity, design, and all sorts of discussion about understanding why we human beings do the things that we do. Welcome to you all, listeners old and new. It's great to be back after a holiday pause. Now, I hope you enjoyed my podcasts with behavioral science consultancy BE Works. Following fast in their footsteps, today I'm delighted to launch a three-part series with the extraordinarily talented, sharp-witted and humble Dave Blakely, Executive Vice President, Venture Studio and Growth Incubator, Mutt49, for a load of BS on best behaviour. I'm so happy to be collaborating with Mac 49 on this series. I really encourage you to check out some of the amazing work they do driving growth and building new ventures with some of the greatest brands around at Mac49.com. Now, Dave was a leader at design agency IDEO for many years and has advised organizations on innovation and design thinking as wide ranging as NASA, Google and Eli Lilly over a decades long career. He sailed the Silicon Valley seas, studying engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, working in a Hewlett Packard spin-off, as well as teaching at Stanford's renowned D-School. In our conversations together, I can assure you Dave will talk a load of BS, and today he'll also share stories and insight from his time designing the new spacesuit and a device which prevented vets injecting themselves rather than cattle. We also cover robots, rituals, and Rory Sutherland metaphorically farting in front of clients. Now, lastly, before we start, I want to alert you all to my live interview with Bill Browder at Jewish Book Week in London on Sunday, the 5th of March at 3.30pm at King's Place. As you may remember, I interviewed Bill on this podcast last year about his book Freezing Order and being Vladimir Putin's public enemy number one. So go to jewishbookweek.com if you'd like a ticket. There are very few left, I believe. Now, on with this show. And I'm feeling reasonably confident that there's nothing in the next 30 minutes or so which will get Putin's goat. Dave, welcome to a load of BS on best behavior, our three-part dive into the crisscrossing forces of innovation, creativity, and behavioral science. I'm really thrilled to be joining forces with you on subjects close to both our hearts. It's a pleasure to be here, Daniel. Fantastic. Likewise for me. Now, let me ask you first up, what are you hoping for in these discussions? Daniel, I'm really hoping I can have impact on our listeners. I'm sure that, like me, all of our listeners continue to think about career directions, think about personal and professional growth. And I sure hope I can help our listeners with my perspectives and my life experiences. Definitely. I'm excited about that too, but what I'm also excited about is hearing about as many of your experiences as we could squeeze in over these episodes, from learning about the vagaries of human behavior across different continents to building startups, investing in startups, and all the wisdom that you've shared with many along the way. So let's zigzag and see where we get to. 
When I look at your career, Dave, what's immediately obvious is that creativity, design, and innovation are at its heartbeat. I mean, after all, you spent over 15 years at IDEO, the modern poster child of invention and maverick and design thinking. But of course, you started out training as an engineer. So let me ask, well, not quite first up, but my second question, have you always liked building new things? I always have. I think it's important for all of us to ask ourselves, what's a through line in our interests? What's a through line in things that we really, really love? And for me, learning about science and technology and using analysis and technology to create and build new things, I've always loved that. From the time I was a little kid tinkering around with ham radios to today. So when you think back on your journey from the University of California, Berkeley, all the way now to being a driving force, building new ventures for the Global 1000 at Mark 49, what have been the key punctuation points or bumps in the road on that journey? Well, the first thing I want to say is I wish I had known when I was 20 or 21 years old that there were going to be bumps in the road or punctuations because At that time, particularly for people that studied engineering, there was just this expectation that you would go into whatever field you selected. I always wanted to work in space science and build spaceships. When I was a junior, when I was in my third year at university at Berkeley, I got what I thought was going to be a dream job, working at the Space Sciences Lab on what is now the Keck Observatory, a giant state-of-the-art telescope. I was so worried because I found the work so, so boring and I failed to understand what I think most younger people understand well now, which is that just studying engineering doesn't commit you to any specific and narrow path. And it is so possible to use engineering or any other degree for that matter as an entry point into the professional world and from there to pivot. So I wish I hadn't spent so much time worrying about whether I had chosen the right career to study for, you know, putting all these years into engineering just based on the fact that one job and one experience kind of bored me. So it's always great to think about turning points in your career. I think we all need to have a certain humility about this. It's not about any of us constructing some amazing trajectory for our lives. It's about chance events and unexpected opportunities benefiting a prepared mind. So I think if I were to think about four really pivotal events in my career, the first is you need to learn to do something. And you need to recognize that at university, for the most part, you don't learn a deep skill. You get that on the job. At university, you learn the theory, and that's as it should be. I got, when I got my first job at a spinoff of Hewlett-Packard called Kevex, To this day, it's been many decades, I am grateful to my first boss, whose name was Ken Miller, because what he did was essentially work with me to support me heavily in designing the robot arm, which was my job to create this complex electromechanical robot arm for an advanced instrument. And then he ran around telling everybody that I had done it myself. And to this day, I consider that act of tremendous selflessness and generosity as pivotal to my management approach. And to this day, I still sort of say to myself, I'm paying it forward for Ken Miller, crediting people who I support, you know, with total responsibility for what they've pulled off. So back then, were you at the forefront of early robotics? I was lucky enough to study robotics at the University of California at Berkeley under two fabulous professors named Auslander and Tomazuka. And yeah, we were at the leading edge of robotics, which compared to the state they're in now, in view of how far computing has gotten, was very, very crude. So as I know you, Dave, you know, you are a a buzzing bee for creative thinking, a, a honeypot of experimentation, a startup maven, and the ultimate investigative journalist of the human condition. So what keeps you going and who keeps you going? 
The first thing I want to say is, I sure appreciate you saying that, Daniel, but I had to be taught to do those things. When I first joined IDEO, I was hired as an engineer, and I was hired ultimately to build the engineering team, a group called IDEO Smart Products. And I had to be taught to go beyond engineering to have some of those investigative journalist tendencies. So for example, it was a revelation to me working with Eli Lilly on large animal veterinary products. It was a revelation to me that rather than sitting back and waiting for the marketing team at Eli Lilly to specify for me what I needed to build for them and what my engineering team needed to build, instead, I was running around the field with large animal veterinarians using prototypes with them and actually responsible for identifying problems to be solved, pain points, and opportunities. That was a whole new universe to me. And I'm just eternally grateful to IDEO for helping me understand that everyone is an agent of change and everyone has the ability to ferret out problems and unexpected pains and areas of opportunity based on observations and interviews informed by intuition. So what did you end up building at Eli Lilly? As with so many programs, Daniel, the insights were completely unexpected. The biggest issue that large animal veterinarians had, or one of them at least, was that when they give injections to cattle, they constantly stick themselves by mistake. You've got all these large animals milling around, and you've got a very sharp needle, and it's very easy to get jostled and poke yourself. So we set up a holster and an automated system to dispose of the needle to prevent needle sticks for veterinarians, because that proved to be very important to them. And there is no way we would have had that insight had we not gotten out on the farms in Lansing, Michigan, in the Central Valley of California, and actually observed large animal veterinarians in action. Yeah, I was just going to say there is absolutely no way you could possibly have any sense of that going on unless you were right there. That's really kind of a cool discovery that can lead to great things. I was going to actually ask on reflection to my question, has anyone ever called you a honeypot of experimentation before? No, but I love it. And I think I'm going to put that on every one of my social media posts from now on forever. So thank you. Good. You can have it. Now, talking of ID, of course, you spent a large chunk of your career at this cathedral of creativity. And what made this company not only a hive of creativity is what I'm really curious about, because it's a company that I've come to consider as a real gold standard of having a real creative philosophy, a, a company of brilliant minds of invention and ambition, a really collaborative culture. So what was it that makes or indeed made when you were there IDEO such a force? IDEO did a couple of things really well that led them to develop such a remarkable brand. And as a very, very early employee there, I would like to believe I was a significant part of that. The first is from the very, very beginning, IDEO considered cultural attributes and interpersonal fit right alongside professional skills. This was a lot less typical in the early days of particularly of design and engineering and so on. Typically, people assigned fits often in a way that, you know, an expert system could also do where you were looking for a specific set of skills and attributes. And if those were what was required, say, in a consultancy by a particular client, you plug the person in. IDEO never operated that way. When I did interviews after joining IDEO, when I interviewed new people, half the questions were to establish the technical fit and the other half of the questions were to establish the cultural fit. And among other things, we looked for those subtle cues that, for example, somebody was a really effective team player. We looked for clues like, did this individual use the word we? And when we asked about the proudest achievements, did the person we were interviewing talk about how an entire team 
had delivered something? Or did they say, I, 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 I? Or in the worst case, did they sort of subtly devalue the contributions of their team members? That was a really important indication going forward. So the first thing I would say that IDU did extraordinarily well was hire top flight people with both the professional and the personal attributes to be very successful. IDEO built beautiful relationships with all kinds of universities, which gave them access to incredible students. In early days of IDEO, when it was David Kelly Design, it was built largely on the learning that people in the product design program at Stanford had had, a mix of mechanical engineering, art, and business. Later, we took those methods at IDEO so much further than they were ever developed by the Stanford product design program that we gave them back to the D school. And that's a lot of the motivation for founding the D school. So, you know, academically, ASAN was extremely important. And also, in a very authentic way, IDEO was fabulous at building brand. I see so much inauthentic brand building in the world today. And IDEO was very authentic in the way that it approached media outlets, in the way that it approached itself. And I know this sounds really cliche, but IDEO always walked the walk. They always lived their mission statement. What does Mark 49 do better now? I will always have tremendous affection for IDEO. And IDEO continued to evolve, but I wonder if IDEO evolved rapidly enough to meet the changes of an extraordinarily rapidly changing global economy. And what has me really excited about Mach 49 and something I feel that we're better at than any other company I've ever worked for or even been involved with or even heard of is our ability to evolve and change with the times incredibly quickly and to do an incredibly good job at keeping our fingers on the pulse of leading edge business practices so that we can always, always stay one step ahead of 21st century business. Let's get back to the BS. Now, one subject I'm rather interested in is behavioral science in the wild. The question of how we bring the richness of academic research and lab experiments into the big, messy and disorganized corporate world that we both spend a lot of time in. And I'm interested in how businesses encourage their cohorts to be more creative, to take more risks, to be less conventional, to consider the psychological argument as well as the rational and obvious one. And I thought a great entry point for this conundrum is your work at Stanford's D School, which you referenced just before. But if I'm not mistaken, amongst other, you were teaching PhD students how to commercialize their research, bringing a design thinking lens to the lab Petri dish. So I'd love you to take us into your world at the celebrated D School and give us a sense of who and how you were helping to translate research ideas into big ideas. Let's talk a little bit about what the D School does so well, and then I'm happy to tell you about the class. Design thinking effectively says, let's take the mental constructs of designers. Let's take an understanding of the and commitment to the human experience, an appreciation of business, an understanding of the potential of technology, and Let's abstract those tools that are normally used in design-intensive fields, like advertising, like industrial design, and let's reapply them to a government agency or to a financial services firm. So what we're doing is we're taking the constructs and the approaches, which are tried and true methods used by designers, and reapplying them in unexpected places. And one of the most unexpected was a class that my teaching partner, venture capitalist John Fiber and I taught, which was design thinking for scientists and engineers. And what we said was this, PhD students at Stanford 
have a new choice that previously they never had. What do you do if you get a PhD in data science or in some advanced area of biochemistry? You have the usual set of choices. You work for a national lab, you do postdoc and hope for a professorship, you work for a large company lab. Increasingly, risk-taking venture capitalists like Jurvetson, like Vinod Kosla, are making it possible for PhD students in deep sciences and in deep tech to start their own companies, to start their own startups. And so what we did was to open up a class limited to PhD students with mature thesis work. Most of them were going to be graduating within the next year who wanted to commercialize their work by creating and launching startups. And we taught them how design thinking and the methods and tools of design thinking, and in particular, a user focus was an essential piece of launching that new line of business. And are there businesses in market now which result from those collaborations? There sure are. One of my favorite students in our class was a brain surgeon. And he said, and I never thought I would hear this. He said to me, you know, I really like being a brain surgeon and I continue to do brain surgery a few days a week, but I'd like to try entrepreneurship as well. I found myself thinking, well, what else you got? And in fact, he's one of many people who have created and built and launched really exciting new startups where he leveraged his excellence in brain surgery into entrepreneurship. Wow, that is very cool. Now, one of the great challenges we face as venture builders is the hunt for the counterintuitive solution, the one which doesn't come so naturally to us. Now, sometimes the answer to a poorly selling product can be to put up the price. Now, Rory Sutherland, brilliant behavioral scientist at ad agency Ogilvy, has a lovely take on this. And he talks about the make it pink boardroom strategy, which puts forward what happens in most board meetings if there's a debate about said poorly selling product. Now, the conventional answers lean towards a price shift or an increase in marketing spend. But Rory asks, what would happen instead if you stood up and said, I think we should make it pink? Well, you know, you'd probably be laughed out of the room and humiliated as if you'd just done a huge fart. But I think it's this sort of thinking which we need more of, which exposes us to the less obvious solutions, the lucky accidents, what Rory would refer to in his book Alchemy as benign bullshit, ideas which are hard to pre-rationalize, but ex post make total sense, ideas which our competitors are almost certainly not touching. So I'm going to assume without asking you that you like this way of thinking. And so how do you make things pink in your world? When have you stood up and metaphorically, I presume, farted in front of clients? I'm not going to stand up in front of a team of clients and assert that we should make the product pink. I'm going to hook them up with person-to-person contacts with all kinds of stakeholders in their ecosystem and lead them to the decision that their product needs to be pink because that is the single strongest tool for counterintuitive thinking. If I assert something, they're going to come back at me and there's always a reason to say no and we're just going to go at each other. But if our attention can all be focused externally, on customers, on supply chain partners, on other stakeholders. Now, all of a sudden, you've got true impetus and stimulus for counterintuitive thinking. And I've seen this over and over and over. I firmly believe, based on decades of experience, Daniel, there is no stronger catalyst for counterintuitive thinking and disruptive concepts than contact with people outside the office who aren't you, particularly in the form of a loose and freewheeling dialogue. I suppose on reflection, it's a great answer. And make it pink is more of a mindset, a philosophy, a desire for some provocation. I think the wrong approach is to stand up and be 
provocative out of context. I think the leading to water approach, which you outline, makes absolute sense. And that's why as we talk about that these great ideas are often far easier to post-rationalize. Once it's there, it seems so damn obvious. Once you've had all those conversations and the insights have bubbled to the top in advance, it's far harder to pre-rationalize what seems so counterintuitive or less obvious. I think one of the great privileges of human-centered design, which is essentially what you're doing at Mark 49, is that it you know, it opens the blinkers to, if not always far-flung corners of the earth, and into unfamiliar societies and domains with their own cultural mores and peculiarities. And I think that's what we love about this stuff. We're always learning about the human condition, why we do the things that we do, what is the basis for unconscious cognitive bias, and you know, what do we learn, and, and what can we build that make people's lives better. And I, I'll just share with you, and you're very welcome to listen to this in your own time, but one of my favorite, a load of BS podcasts is with a great guy based in the US called Dimitris Igalatas. He's a specialist in rituals from the sublime to the ridiculous. So from you know benign birthday celebrations to, you know he describes the wild type of Sam Kavadi festival in Mauritius with all its outrageous body piercings and suffering in the name of religion and community bonding. And I wondered firstly, have you ever studied any of these kinds of unusual rituals in your studies and your on your journey looking for rituals looking for habits sometimes the people don't even realize have become rituals and habits and understanding the tremendous meaning they have for people is one of the most powerful tools that design thinking and that empathetic user research can operate let me give you some examples what are some of the rituals that violent extremists engage in to continue to further their justification for violence. For Google Save, we learned about those rituals. We learned about conversations with leaders, and we learned about the importance, for example, of counter-narrative to disrupt those rituals. On a program for Nestle about eating in the Philippines and opportunities for packaged foods, the rituals of social eating were so important, and that's what led us to some really interesting ideas about unique food packaging for social rituals and social eating in the Philippines. And a last quick example, sometimes people have rituals forced on them and they hate them. On a program for NASA many years ago, one of the things we learned is that the ritual of getting in and out of a spacesuit was hateful for astronauts because it just took too much of their valuable time. I had the incredible honor of interviewing astronauts who walked on the moon like Charlie Duke and Harrison Schmidt from Apollo 17. And one of the things he told me, though he didn't use the word ritual, was the ritual of getting in and out of the spacesuit drove him nuts because he was all the way on the moon. He didn't want to spend time on that. And that led us to prioritize new spacesuit designs, which you can get into and out of very, very quickly. Yeah, it's so fascinating, like why it's so that, you know, rituals or in some cases habits, they become such a fundamental prevalent part of what makes us human. And I must say, just thinking back to Demetrius's podcast, I just was just so fascinated by the power of ritual and ceremony, particularly actually the extreme ones. And I know what I learned, one thing was that, you know, the adrenaline and the endorphins released from these sometimes what we would consider crazy, unusual practices, including, by the way, I was, we were talking a lot about firewalking rituals, which are quite extreme. The chemical releases are just so intoxicating. And I was wondering, this may not connect directly to unusual rituals, but I know you've spent time in less obvious locations and doing projects in East and West Africa, building ventures, spending time with people in both urban and remote settings. I wonder, you know, what did you learn from it all? What made you blink in surprise or horror? What, what, what did you take back with you from those experiences? I guess 
the first thing that I want to say about all of my experiences, whether they're personal or professional, traveling through India, working in Africa for Standard Bank and so on, is tolerance and humility are frankly the only sensible and indeed the only rational responses to an incredibly confusing human condition. And with tolerance and with humility, coupled with using our ability to reason and empathize as human beings, I'm convinced that we can solve humanity's grandest problems. If anything, my travels all over the world have given me a profoundly optimistic mindset when I've seen the levels of human ingenuity, human resourcefulness, and human optimism in the face of incredible scarcity on every level, scarcity of capital, scarcity of resources, scarcity of knowledge. I must say, as we just continue to skirt around this subject of innovation, I always feel a little queasy discussing it, whether in a behavioral science context or otherwise, because I think the word and its associated vocabulary are rather overused to become somewhat flaccid. And it's, of course, it's, it's no surprise to me, at least, that there are such a tremendous number of techniques, models, frameworks, guides, theories to help us manage and de-risk innovation. But yet there's no real overarching theory for it. And I suppose that's no surprise. That's the thing with rather abstract and awkward concepts. Analogously, it's fun to imagine all the statements related to gravity before theory of gravitation was scientifically proven. I think it took roughly 300 years for all the elements to come together into a theory for gravitation. And of course, there was a theory. And Stephen Hawking, the late physicist, talked about trying to find one unified theory that explains everything, which feels rather tough to get one's head around. I mean, do you believe that we could ever be close to a unified theory for innovation? Or are you going to call me wrongheaded for even entertaining such foolish thought? Daniel, I'm going to respectfully call you wrongheaded for even suggesting unified theory of innovation. And here's why. You're making an interesting comparison, but I just don't think it applies. Central to scientific advance is coming up with unified theories, right? Maxwell's equations, which unify all electromechanical phenomenon are James Clerk Maxwell's attempt to come up with a general unified theory in that field. He can do that because electrons are eternal and unchanging. But our target in innovation changes and shifts constantly. So we can define innovation. And as a reminder, innovation is creation resulting from study and experimentation. But the winners in innovation don't seek a single unified theory. And they certainly don't try to grasp a single method like agile development or design thinking or disruptive innovation. Rather, what they do is break those down and granularize those into small parts and apply those different methods and tools as appropriate to an ever-changing set of innovation demands put on us by the market and also in our personal lives. Yeah, all this creative thinking stuff, human behavior, it's messy and unpredictable. And I think you know, we, we accept that Newtonian laws don't apply. But I think on, on reflection, we should be rather thankful for. Of course, as human beings, you know, we do yearn for certainty and consistency. But I'm sure, Dave, you, know, you find the idea of perfect predictability rather dull, no? Well, look, perfect predictability would be awful for me. I am way too old for any level of certainty in the work that I do. I want to deal with big, uncertain, ambiguous programs. And I think we should keep Andy Grove's quote in mind. I'm an electrical engineer. Andy Grove, founder of Intel, is a patron saint of electrical engineers. He's a monument to innovation. And Andy Grove said, 
the word innovation is cliche, meaningless, and overused. And he went on to say, I despise the mechanism that spits out these fads because they are so much easier to talk about than to do. And in that, I think we have the seeds of innovation. We should not seek an overarching theory of innovation. Rather, we should find small tools that consistently work. Some of the things we've talked about, Daniel, are that consistently inspiration around problems and opportunities that come from active listening and open dialogue with a variety of stakeholders absolutely works to drive innovation forward. Creating a series of prototypes of increasing complexity to test value propositions and then to test later solutions, that consistently works. Tools like brainstorming, where you're creating a semi-structured means of rapid idea generation, that works over and over. But I have to say, as satisfying as it may be, to knit all those together into one overarching theory of innovation, I just don't buy it. The world is changing too fast and the nature of innovation and the targets of innovation change too quickly for it to be defined in any way other than its application. Well, if Andy Grove says so, then I definitely accept. I accepted it from you also, by the way, Dave. But since you talked about Mr. Grove at Intel, well, that's more than good enough. Now, on this subject of seeking certainty and predictability, I mean, do you actually think one of the motivations for the metaverse, for these virtual alternative worlds, is that you know they might offer more certainty and control to temper all this real-life chaos? I don't think that the metaverse and that remarkable improvements, for example, in remote presence and remarkable advancements in our ability to communicate, including subtle nonverbal cues, I don't see those, Daniel, as reducing uncertainty as much as I see them lubricating business and social processes incredibly. I see the metaverse one day, we don't know exactly when, as an incredible tool to foster effective globally disaggregated teams. And I see it as an incredible tool to foster creativity and innovation and better communication for people who live on entirely different continents from very, very different cultures possibly in very, very different industries. I buy that. I mean, of course, if predictions about the metaverse are true, in decades to come, you know, we won't be conversing at the pub, socializing in part by avatar in alternative realities. I mean, as a student of human behavior, how does that make you feel? I think that technology should be regarded as a partner rather than an inevitable channel or an inevitable trend. I think that whether we're talking about artificial intelligence or metaverse, The magic happens when we say to ourselves, this is about teaming. We need to use our heads. We can never let process be a proxy for thinking things through. So we can never just reflexively start to conduct all of our meetings over Zoom or one day over the metaverse. We have to ask ourselves, when are video conferences, when are metaverse, when are tools like Slack most effective? How can they be put in their best light and how do they fit in our business processes. And on the flip side, when are informal face-to-face gatherings essential and what makes them so special? And we can continue to point to intangibles like subtle nonverbal cues of communication as extraordinarily good reasons, actually essential reasons to continue to meet face-to-face. This is the reason that I don't believe that metaverse will ever replace face-to-face interactions. I think it's incumbent on every one of us to get much, much smarter about 
when to use what communication medium based on all kinds of criteria. And that's a sophistication that we don't have yet because technology advance has outstripped our understanding of the best tools for communication, for collaboration, for empathy. Right. Well, I was trying my very best to poke you there and provoke you on the metaverse. A really good, thoughtful, detailed responses. Thanks for that. Now, listen, we're going to get to the last question of the day. And in the spirit of everything we've riffed on so far, how do you remain sufficiently illogical? I pride myself on reasoned and fact-based decisions, but that's not always the right answer in innovation. And I need to go against the grain sometimes. As I mentioned earlier, the single strongest tool is a commitment to active listening, active, open listening, tolerance, and empathy with people who aren't you. You go into open dialogues with the notion that the person I'm speaking to is correct. He or she is communicating a reality to me that I need to accept and interpret and understand. And that is by far the single strongest catalyst for what you might regard as irrational thoughts and what I regard often as completely unexpected insights and surprising new ideas that appear to come out of nowhere. They say innovation is not rocket science, but with your contribution to space exploration at NASA in mind, I'm not so sure. But let's pause here and keep our crowds baying for more. So we shall be back next week for another dose of optimism, creativity, design thinking, innovation. It goes without saying a load of BS. So thank you, Dave, so much for being with me today. It's just been great, Daniel. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. I've had a lot of fun. It couldn't have been more fun. And I can't wait to chat again very soon. Take care for now. Thank you. Well, I hope we've left you baying for more. And if you like this, please do share with a friend, share it on social media, and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next week, we'll be talking about the serious matter of Blakely dinner parties, discipline, and the best creative leaders. See you next time, and be very well.